When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Lance Percy, and we are joined today by Ruth Mostyn, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of Pittsburgh, where she is also Director of the World History Center. Hello, Ruth. Hey, how are you doing? Great, great, and uh, really, really pleased to be talking to you today about your wonderful recent book, The Yellow River, A Natural and Unnatural History. But before we jump into that, I was wondering if you could first uh, give us a short potted biography of your career so far. Sure. Um, well, I did my PhD at, uh, at UC Berkeley in the 90s, and um, I was sort of going along just kind of being a normal Chinese history grad student and working on a dissertation in a topic that would today be called spatial history, although that term did not exist at the time, um, but a dissertation about um, the spatial organization of political power, state power in Song Dynasty China, the 10th to the 13th century, and doing it in the way that historians are trained to do it, reading lots of documents and interpreting the documents. And I got involved kind of... um, serendipitously while I was a grad student with a project called the Electronic Cultural Atlas Initiative directed by Lou Lancaster. And it was a very early digital humanities project. The term digital humanities also did not exist at the time. It was called humanities computing, but it was a project to do a sort of um, digital archive of globally distributed files about um, topics in cultural history. And um, Lou was a scholar of Buddhist studies and was interested in how the Buddhist canon had circulated through Asia and through the world and was interested in getting together people who had specialists in various spatial topics and various topics in information science that would allow him and others to investigate this question in a collective way. And so I got involved with Ikai and it blew my mind. It changed my world to realize that there were ways of thinking about the past that were visual, that were based on structured data, um, that GIS existed, that it's possible to spatially model the past using software platforms, and also that it was possible to answer, ask and answer big questions by working collaboratively. So um, I took a really long time to finish my PhD, 
because I was at that point, I began not only doing things the way historians are used to doing them, close readings of texts, but also trying to model my inf the information I had about spatial change in a structured way. And also while working on and ultimately working as staff for this uh, digital atlas project. Um, so I finished my degree. I published the book, ultimately, the dissertation book. So my first book, um, Dividing the Realm in Order to Govern the Spatial Organization of the Song State, which came out in 2011 with the Harvard Asia Center. And, um, and that book utilized this spatial data that I had started modeling and collecting as a graduate student. And also, I will say very frankly, I've never really learned how to be more than a sort of beginner level user of the kinds of technology and the kinds of software platforms that I love and are inspired by. Um, I'm always the historian in a team that also involves other kinds of scholars. And so I worked um, very closely and with tremendous inspiration from my then graduate student, Elijah Meeks, who um, created a really fantastic uh, database, a website, and did a lot of the analysis and cartography for that first book. So after I finished that book, my dissertation book, I knew that I wanted to continue working on these kinds of spatial questions, um, but I wanted to do something that had more of a physical and material existence in the real world than political geography, which is um, sort of always an abstraction in the world. And, um, and at that time, by that time, I was on the faculty of the University of California Merced, which was located, is located in the California Central Valley. So um, this very, very intensively um, manufactured and managed water landscape of intensive agriculture, but one that is also always prone to droughts and floods. And my office at Merced, you know, looked out on a reservoir, a small reservoir. It looked out on a canal geography, canals that were literally on spigots to um, monitor the water flow. And so I got really interested in water and how water functioned in agricultural landscapes. And so, um, so I decided I wanted to do something having to do with water history for my next project. And um, my first idea, and I, I also knew, so I wanted it to be spatial. I wanted it to be something that was amenable to using these kinds of digital and spatial methods that I was interested in. And I'm also always interested in really long-term and large-scale history. And um, the first thing I started scoping out for my second project, the one that ultimately has become the book we're talking about today, was um, actually going to be about the Dujiangyan waterworks on the Min River in Sichuan. And I set that aside for a couple of reasons. One is that I realized that that history would, um, ha would, would by necessity also involve me in doing Taoist history 
and um, because the geography of the spread of Taoism and the geography of that water system are very intimately linked to each other. And I decided that I just didn't have the right training or the right linguistic chops or um, kind of the level of interest in religious history that would be involved. And the other is that, um, you know, as I started working on this book, which was about 10 years ago, I also was becoming increasingly attuned and alarmed by the urgency of global warming and climate change and the catastrophic age into which we're entering. And the Yen story would kind of have been a happy story. That's a waterworks that has functioned pretty much as designed for about 2000 years. And it's extraordinary, but I decided that that wasn't quite the story I wanted to be telling at this moment, something that would sort of have this kind of triumphalism baked into it. And so that's when I started working on the Yellow River. And um, I was very lucky early on to meet um, Ling Zhang, Zhang Ling, who at that point was finishing her book, The River, the Plain, the State. And, um, you know, I had some great conversations with her. She helped to uh, make introductions to some of her colleagues in China, where um, the study of the Yellow River is its own gigantic field. And so, um, you know, over the 10 years or so that I was working on this book, um, I also had the chance, um, I was very grateful that I had the opportunity to um, travel back and forth to China a number of times to look at sites on the river to talk to people who are experts in Yellow River history. And um, that's the story. So this book, like the first one, is um, absolutely relies on the collaboration of people who are much smarter about data than I am. I'm also, it's also a book that I wrote at a stage in my career when I was, um, I'm grateful to have been able to work with data, with um, research assistants who were able to do some of the um, data, uh, the, find the data and structure the data. And so it's another big collaborative book with a database behind it. Yes, I mean, it really shows the the degree of collaboration and the amount of data. And you do quite a lot in the book itself to to give credit to all of these people who um, who input it in this way. Um, before we get into some of the details of the book, I thought I'd start with a um, uh, not so much a provocative question, but a very, very basic question that is also quite a complex one, which is what is a river? And how, how through this project did your understanding of what a river actually is change and transform? You know, that I, I love that question. Thank you so much for starting there. Um, you know, before I started working on the book and even kind of well into the book, I didn't really think of river as being a complex keyword. But the question that I started out with in the book, the first thing that kind of drove me when I was just starting to scope out the project was um, that I recognized that the way that the middle and upper course of the river were discussed in texts and the way that the floodplain, the lower course of the river was discussed in texts were very, very different. And a number of the early books that I was reading about the history of the river and just 
the natural history of the river as well as the human history were emphatic about how different the upper course and the middle course were from the lower course on this particular river. So the first thing that I came to understand about this river and perhaps as rivers in general is that even though, you know, the same molecules of water, right, the same molecules of H2O can be carried by gravity a very long distance indeed, uh, the river itself might be a number of different things along its course. And many of the books, I mean, most of what's been written about the Yellow River, both in English and Chinese, has focused on the floodplain because the floodplain is the part of the river course that's densely populated. It's the part of the river course where the natural disasters, we can can problematize natural, I'm sure we'll get there, but the the floods for which the river is so um, justly famous those all occur on the floodplain. And what that has meant is that there's been very, very little study of what has happened on the middle course and the upper course. And so as I started focusing, as I, I mean, I, I became really certain that the contribution that would be important and exciting for me to make would be one that stitched together the story of the whole river course. And as soon as I started doing that, I realized that what I was going to have to be thinking about was not a sort of neat channel of water, but rather an entire watershed, right? Because the story of this river is so much a story, not of what happens to the water, but of what happens to sediment. And what that means is that I need to be studying the entire large region from which the sediment that washes into the river in its middle course comes. And then on the floodplain, I need I need to be studying not just the one channel of water or the multiple channels of water that can be mapped at any given moment, but the entire um, larger region uh, through which that water has flowed and might flow. And so that means that ultimately, even though this is a book that's called The Yellow River, it's really a history that entrains much of North China, um, as well as the, some territories around the edges of what is now China. Well, yeah, I, uh, I saw this as well. The geographic scope of this was, was, was so much bigger. And I would also argue the historical scope as well. I was really impressed that you didn't necessarily exclusively lean into the history of the Yellow River as it is presented in histories and the histories of waterworks and histories of flood defences, but you try to look beyond to regions where there aren't as many histories available, especially in, I think, one of the key regions of this book, the Lowest Plateau. Mm-hmm. Right. There is, to this moment, in English and to, to an extent even in Chinese, you know, there's not one good introductory history of the whole Les Plateau or of the province of Shanxi, which is which entrains the major part of the Les Plateau. You know, this is something where when I was in the midst of researching the book, I assumed that I would be able to find, you know, one or two good books that had come before me, shoulders on which I could gratefully stand of other scholars, ideally in English or in Chinese, 
Either way, just one sort of history of the Les Plateau, history of the province of Shanxi, and um, it just doesn't quite exist. Um, so it was, you know, I, I kept having to remind myself that I wasn't setting myself the task of writing a sort of a big kind of um, magisterial history of the whole Les Plateau, but um, it's really striking to me that there isn't such a thing. And not to sort of um, switch gears, but I'm also really surprised that in English, there's still not one big history of the Grand Canal, which is another one of the um, spatial and human pieces of infrastructure without which the history of the Yellow River wouldn't make sense. Uh, yes, yes, I remember the Grand Canal features recurringly throughout this book as well and its relationship to these various waterways. Sometimes, yeah, an infrastructure project that was maintained at the expense of a lot of other kind of areas and regions and pro other projects as well. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, I just, I, I just want to jump in with one more thought, which is um, as I was working on this book, one of the people who made a really big impact on me was a postdoctoral fellow in the uh, Humanities Center at um, UC Merced named Kim DeWolf, who um, is a science, te science technology studies scholar. And at the time I was, that was kind of in mid research of the book to me, for me. And, you know, as I was doing some of my early presentations at the center, the humanity center, um, I was sort of presenting it like people do this, the river does that, right. And, um, you know, sort of keeping all of my different human and non-human actors really separate from one another. And what Kim pushed me to do from an STS, Science and Technology Studies point of view, was just to better understand the inextricable entanglements of human and non-human actors with one another. And, um, and that was really challenging for me, but I ended up doing a lot of reading around that time in science and technology studies and articulating the language for how to better understand the agency of non-human actors in history and also better understand uh, both conceptually and in language how to um, describe interrelationships and causality in ways that are both more complex and more amorphous than I think historians have tended to do in the past. Right, yeah, and I think that that is epitomized in the very title of this book, The Yellow River and Natural and Unnatural History. And we've mentioned two kind of places that sort of represent those kind of the extremes of that, like natural, we talked about the Lus Plateau, like a, a natural environment, and then the sort of power, the pinnacle of artifice, the, uh, the unnatural, which is the Grand Canal. And I'm guessing so the Yellow River kind of falls between these both geographically, but also conceptually as being both natural and unnatural. Would you elaborate more on that? Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing I'll say is that um, this this is not the title that I originally chose for the book. Um, the title, my working title for years was um, Use Traces or Following the Tracks of You. And it was a reference to the great map, the Yujitu, the great um, 12th century map of the um, sort of past and present of the territory of the, of the Chinese realm, the Song realm and its environment. 
in which the Yellow River is depicted very, very prominently. And that's a map that I have loved since grad school. It has always inspired me. If I had a favorite map, it would be that map. And, uh, and I really wanted to reference you, the, the person we can talk about who died, you, you the great was, and, um, and, and how he's sort of the avatar of this book. So I wanted to reference you the great, and I wanted to reference the UG tool. But ultimately, when the book was well into production, just about done, it was time for the marketing team at Yale University Press to put their hands on it. They said, nobody knows, like used traces will not make sense. We cannot, we do not want to sell a book called used traces. And um, so they, and they also have published some other river history books. And they said, we really want to title this book after the river itself. Um, so, so that's how it ended up with the four title, The Yellow River and um, Natural and Unnatural History also sort of came along at that time. I had some longer and kind of more descriptive titles, you know, subtitles, but um, it was really my editor who's fantastic, Jean Thompson Black. She's, she's a phenomenal editor. Um, I should add parenthetically that this book is not published. Jean uh, Thompson Black is not a history editor and she's not an Asian studies editor. She's an editor in the natural history part of uh, Yale University Press. And I am so grateful and delighted to be working with her because you know, I know how to write a history book. I know how to write a book that historians of China want to read, but working with her really helped me think about how to write a book that really foregrounded the non-human parts of this history and really kept the river itself at the center. And, um, and I think that um, in a sense, this story I'm telling about how the title evolved is, um, you know, at the time, something I was disappointed by because I, I didn't have the chance to use a title that had been meaningful to me, but um, I, I think is indicative of how much uh, my fabulous editor helped make this book into something that is sort of more capacious and more surprising than it would have been if it had been a pure history book. And I, and I realize now that I did not even answer that. I went off on a tangent and didn't even, I didn't even answer your question. Natural, everything is natural and unnatural. That's right. In a sense, I intend for that subtitle to be read ironically because there's no way of of no, you know, I mean, once humans put their hands on the non-human world, the human world and the non-human world are both changed irrevocably by their relationship with one another. Right. Well, uh, maybe a more concrete example of what I was trying to get at. One of the big, one of the big kind of fundamental revelations that I got uh, quite early on in this book is that the Yellow River wasn't always called the Yellow River. That was something that kind of came about at a specific point. And that was sort of a result. Like once it become the Yellow River, like some things had kind of changed in irrecoverable ways. Absolutely. Yeah, it seems that the term the Yellow River only came into widespread use around the time of the Tang Dynasty. So say the um, 7th, 8th century and prior to that, it was um, typically called the Great River. Um, 
And so one of the things that that, and it's not that the river was never yellow before that. It's not that it never flooded. It's not that there isn't, there aren't earlier references to the term yellow river, but it wasn't widely used and it wasn't used for instance in the title of books until the, until the Tang dynasty. And so that's one of the ways that you can see the way that the river was transformed by human activity and also the way that um, human activity in a sense transforms the river. It turns it right when you rename something, you turn it into something different than it was before. People see see it differently. Right. And so I think that's an example of a transformation. Just simply that change in the name of the river is an example of the way that um, people change the river. The river changes people. Um, things get redefined over time, right? The river is not just one thing. We talked earlier about how the river isn't just its water and it's not just its channel. Um, it's, right, it's, it's, it, it is the entire floodplain and it's all of the sort of things that are entrained in the river, in the water. Um, and that's also, that's true sort of thinking spatially, but it's also true thinking temporally, right? A river isn't the same river, over time as the river itself changes and as people's relationship to it changes. Right. Yeah. And um, I also, what I really like is uh, in this book, as you trace it over the centuries and even millennia is this way that not only is the relationship to this river changing, but the, the, the substance of the river changes due to land use in different parts of this large, larger watershed. And what I really appreciated uh, when you were talking about the upper reaches of the river and the Los Plateau is that you didn't normalize agriculture as you would do in a lot of conventional histories, especially histories that talk about a civilization, the Chinese civilization, this idea of land use, agriculture expansion being seen as net positives. Whereas when you talk about the Los Plateau, it's seen as something that is it vacillates the degree to which the state, the Chinese states encourage intervention into these regions and expansion of agriculture activity. But there's always a sense that this is just one of many options that could have been done with this land and it has its consequences further downstream. Right. Well, you know, like so many things in history, once things happen, right, they are the things that exist. It's a one-way street. Once you have a dense population on the Les Plateau, there's, you know, those people exist. Once you have farming, right, you have farming. Um, so I'm always really interested in these sort of moments of choice, these kinds of one-way streets. Um, and then the other thing that is, you know, one of the other things that is in the back of my mind and is a little bit more implicit than explicit in the book, but is always something that I was thinking about was um, settler colonialism, right? And rethinking, you know, using some of this kind of terminology that we tend not to apply to Chinese history, just because um, things seem like foregone conclusions, right? We tend to use terms like settler colonialism for places where that process is clear, it's in recent memory, it's vivid, right? It's, um, you know, topics like the, you know, settlement of the American West, right? The colonization of the American West by Anglo settlers. 
um, we tend not to use that kind of language and terminology for China because it seems like it happened so long ago. It just gets naturalized. But I think the task of the historian, right, always the task of the historian, always is to take things that they have that have seemed like they have always existed and to try to find their points of origin, to try to find those moments when something that seems like it's always been some way became that way. That's what I love about doing really, really long term history like this also. And so, um, you know, I was one of the things that I was able to identify was the moment, the sort of particular kind of pivot moments of intensification when, you know, always in the context of war, always in the context of colonialism, there were periodic moments where there were Chinese regimes that wanted to move farmers onto the Les Plateau and to move garrisons of soldiers, often farmer soldiers, uh, right, who had to, who were expected to grow a portion of their own food, right? Um, it was always, the Les Plateau was never a place, not until the 18th, 18th century, probably 17th, 18th century. Not until then were there farmers who particularly wanted to move into Shanxi. Um, the uh, the it was until then always a multi ethnic, multi racial space of multiple modes of subsistence, where the the extent that there was intensive permanent farming and sedentary land use, it was always happening because there were regimes that wanted it to happen, not because there were farmers who wanted to to be there. And of course, the history of lumbering is also really significant. And that was something that came into focus for me only fairly late in the research for this book. Um, But uh, the fact that um, there was so often a timber shortage in North China and the need to to find timber for construction, um, timber for fuel, that was one of the main causes of slope erosion in addition to farming on the Les Plateau. Yeah, and it's uh, one of the many uh, sort of ironies that we see that plays out in the book is something that now nowadays we all learn at school at quite a young age. We understand the dynamics of soil erosion following deforestation. And yet many of the flood defences were using the very vegetation and the the, the the lumber that was actually protecting the soils in the floodplains. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and this is you know, one of the ways that complex, right, it's not that there was a good alternative to that, right? At, at the point, you know, I'm, I'm still really I'm sort of obsessed with this question of, um, you know, once you make environment transforming and society make transforming choices, that's what you've got. You can't walk away from the entire North China floodplain, um, right? Once there are people there, they're there. Um, So at that point, you have to build up flood defenses. But I should say what's interesting about that, I mean, I, 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 on the one hand, yes, foregone conclusion, right, uh, you know, yes, once some structure is put in place, it's there. But one of the other things that I discovered that was really interesting was how often, I mean, until fairly late in time, right, um, and 
in a sense, throughout the entire history that I'm describing here, there were always dissenting voices, right? There were always people in the government who said, we shouldn't be building all these garrisons on the Les Plateau, or um, we shouldn't be maintaining these high levees and trying to stop every flood on the floodplain, right? There were always alternatives. There were always opportunities to um, make the interventions less intensive and to, um, you know, um, support different kinds of um, people's behavior. And, you know, in my mind, again, implicitly more than explicitly, I have always had the present day in mind as I've been working on this book and thinking, for instance, about wildfires in California or floods on the Mississippi and realizing how much um, American political policy and insurance policy has encouraged people to engage in environmentally risky behavior and to situate themselves in environmentally unstable places. And um, that's not necessary, right? That's, a, that's something that with some relatively small policy changes, people would be behaving very differently. Uh, land values would look very different. And that's crystal clear to me here in 2022. But um, I am, that's also clear to me. I mean, it's not in as clear focus because I'm not living it myself and the, the um, sources that I have access to are more limited. But it's also very clear to me how much that was the case in both the Les Plateau and the floodplain of the Yellow River throughout history, and the fact that there were always advocates for doing things differently. You know what, and that what we think of as being the sort of the classic Yellow River, the the high investment, high disaster floodplain version of the Yellow River, was really something that existed in that way only in the 18th century, the long 18th century, essentially. Right. Yeah. I think you, I mean, the sentiment that you just expressed, you sum up very, very aptly in a sentence that I even wrote down in my notes. I thought it was so succinct, succinctly kind of fitting, which is that the, the gulf between expert knowledge on the one hand and the universe of political possibility on the other can sometimes be very wide indeed. I really relish this as kind of summing up something that followed the narrative that you were giving us of the Yellow River, but also spoke to us now in this current time of ongoing climate crises. Absolutely. I, I don't know. Have you watched Don't Look Up yet on Netflix? Yes. Right, yes. right, right, right. <laughs> I had forgot. You, you just read back to me a sentence that I wrote that I, I, I love. It's a great sentence. I like, oh, right. I wrote that sentence. Um, and that's exactly also the story of Don't Look Up, which is, you know, sort of so much feels like the narrative of the moment, the movie of the moment, which is 100 percent about exactly that topic. I will say, though, so in your research, when you came across these dissenting voices, um, what did it feel like to to read time again? Because I, I, I remember there were some that were in the kind of early medieval period of the uh, the third and fourth century after the Han after the Han Empire, and then later on uh, there was some in the Song, I think. And I did write in my notes there was Liu Tianhe in the Ming, and others in the Qing. So these people keep cropping up. How did it feel when you when you found these? Like, oh yes, 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 and then you realize like, well, you know how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know what's interesting is 
And by doing this history that is this much long-term history, I'm able to focus on things being cyclical rather than having one and only one ending point. Um, you know, I think often about the story of the floodplain during most of the Ming, where the people who were sort of winning the policy disputations were the people who said, let's maintain multiple channels, let's do less levee building, let's make the Grand Canal function less efficient, efficiently, but spend less money and less effort on trying to transform this landscape. And those people won until the late 15th century. Um, and then, you know, um, when um, Pan Jishun, you know, who's the sort of the classic, you know, one of the great heroes of Yellow River history and the classic advocate for, you know, the high levees and the straight channel, um, when he won that policy disputation, a lot of people were really angry. Um, both because of the changes in land use that that caused and um, because of the cost in labor and money to implement that policy decision. And then sort of at the far other end, essentially, there's sort of one pulse of floodplain um, management that roughly speaking starts with Pan Jishun in the late 1400s and ends with the final rupture of the imperial river in the mid night in the mid 1800s um, that what happened in the mid 1800s was partially that the system had kind of outlived its the, the the engineering possibilities that existed but it was also that southern elites you know Jiangnan elites no longer wanted to be subsidizing the Grand Canal to this extent that um, there was more rice being produced around Beijing. There was better sea travel between the South and the North. And um, there was no need to maintain this river system that had been oriented towards the needs of the Grand Canal rather than sort of the larger landscape that the river was part of. So I guess all of that is to say that um, you know, there's, there always, and you know, I say this whenever I teach and whenever I'm teaching something that's sort of heavy and difficult and is about exploitation and disaster and unfortunately, for better or worse, that comes up a lot in teaching history. And, you know, I, I always insist to my students and I want to insist here, there's always people dissenting. There's always people resisting, right? That's a, that's such an important history to find and, um, you know, sometimes those people win. And in the history of the Yellow River, both by um, sort of um, kind of affirmative policy and by happenstance, sometimes the forces of less intervention and less transformation of the natural world are the ones that, um, that appear, right? The Les Plateau, for instance, is exploited um, less intensively during times when it was under the control of non-Han people or when it was just not particularly significant as a military and colonial frontier. Right. I would say just on the other side, because I, I definitely, every time a dissenter kind of appeared pointing out that they should be looking more upstream and looking at how to manage the Los Pastor rather than these mitigating factors of floods downstream in the floodplain. 
I was also impressed, and you go into quite a lot of detail about all the measures that were carried out in the floodplain. And the technology is amazing in its way. Uh, and the expenditure as well is is tremendous. And what really struck me about it is while we're reading these dissenting voices, which we now with hindsight are like, well, yeah, scientifically, they're onto something here, even if their methods are different to the ways that we understand things now. Um, but then the the people that are winning out in managing the Yellow River in, in the ways that they were, it wasn't like it was out of apathy either. It was more like it was almost this entire institutional kind of apparatus that had its own inertia. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I always look for when I'm thinking about institutional actors in history is what are their incentives? Right. And one of the places that was really clear to me in this book, I mean, one is, you know, starting in the song, the fact that what floodplain um prefects and magistrates, county and prefectural level officials were rewarded for over the course of their careers is, were they able to keep the peace? Were they able to keep collecting taxes within their district? That's all. So of course, what that's going to lead to is very poor river basin level policy, very low chance of cooperation among officials, but officials within their own district wanting to make sure that people are eating, people have jobs, people are able to stay on their land, and that the river isn't flooding within their borders, right? And so that's going to lead to a policy of always wanting to build more levees, more canals, more waterworks, and um, bring in more population. That's just simply how the incentives work. And likewise, I mean, another place that came really clearly into focus for me is on the Qing Dynasty Les Plateau, where um, by then the results of deforestation were very, very clear indeed, but where the incentives for officials were always to um, turn more land over to agriculture, raise more taxes, bring in more population, export more trees. There were never any kinds of incentives for engaging in activities that were supportive of conservation, even when it was crystal clear. It was no question to anybody that there were conservation measures that were possible, but in no way without, you know, someone would have to sacrifice their whole career in order to implement any of those practices at the local or regional level. Yeah. Do you think that this then has kind of lessons for today, sort of understanding this institutional kind of inertia and these these kind of sets of incentives and whether they, they exist or not? Absolutely. I mean, the only way to make any kind of social change is to change the incentives for the people who have to implement the social change, right? And um, as long as people are still getting rich on um, the status quo, as long as people are still maintaining power on the status quo, it's not going to change. Um, so I, I hate to feel pessimistic about that, but I think that, you know, the only way to make um, social change that causes that that changes the incentives is to 
rupture the structures from which those incentives arise. Right. And I'd also like to point out uh, in your epilogue uh, of this book, you you introduce us to uh, a concept uh, and a term that has been um, in circulation now for a few years, the idea of the Anthropocene. And you relate right up until today the situation with um, the Yellow River. Now, some of its conditions are being exacerbated by global climate change now in ways that previously when there was more uh, like natural kind of uh, instances of global climate change that, you know, the fluctuations of global climate over the centuries. But now with the this this new era that we're in, like uh, some of these issues are going to be even harder to address. Right. I'll tell you. One thing that I think about a lot and that I think I mentioned just in one paragraph in the epilogue is that a huge percentage of all of the new tree cover being planted anywhere in the world is being planted on the Les Plateau. And it's remarkable to travel. And I think I have some some photographs of this that I took on one of my trips. It's remarkable to travel through the Les Plateau right now and see, you know, acre after acre, mile after mile. I mean, you travel, you know, I took these train rides across the Les Plateau and saw, you know, mile after mile after mile of, you know, new trees being planted on these hillside slopes. And that reminds me, that's another reminder that the story is never over, right? Um, You know, it's easy as a historian to sort of fall into the trap of teleology, I think, and say that everything leads up to the present day, right? But the present day is just another day in the millennia long history of this region. And, um, and it's one where right now, you know, a land that has been prone to uh, some of the world's most severe erosion for a millennium is now being um, planted with trees by a government that is um, unusually good by contemporary standards at changing incentives and changing policy. So the story of the floodplain is now of a river that doesn't even make its way to the ocean every year, uh, but, um, you know, is also a place where the amount of human misery is a lot less, right? The risks are much less than they were for much of the last millennium and where a, uh, a region that has sort of been a global symbol of deforestation is now being covered with trees. Yeah, I, uh, I traveled there a few years ago and I saw for myself, I was, yeah, I was amazed. And uh, I, cause I was visiting a friend's hometown in the Yulin area and I looked at photos of when he was a child and behind him were just these barren yellow hills the same hills that when I was there were completely vegetated. Exactly. With with new growth. Right. And some of it is just, um, you know, hillside stabilizing growth. And, you know, when I was in the Yulian area, I also saw a lot of um, fruit orchards being planted. And so it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I try to avoid declensionism, right? You know, the sort of the, I mean, it, so much of an older generation of environmental history is about how things always get worse. And um, on the one hand, that's always something, right? It, it, it so often seems like something that's possible to point to, but 
On the other hand, it's not very interesting history and it's often not true, or at least it's often not the only story to tell. And, um, you know, one of the things that I know I quote in the introduction of this book and one of my other favorite articles and favorite lines, I mean, one of the things that just resonates with me, you know, resonated with me the entire time I was working on this project is Mark Elvin's um, kind of quip about 3000 years of unsustainability in China. And I love the paradox that's inherent in that, because from the present day and from shorter term history, we hear about concepts like sustainability and unsustainability and assume that if something isn't sustainable, it is therefore unsustainable and that therefore means that some kind of permanent collapse is, you know, kind of implicitly the result. But the idea of 3,000 years of unsustainability, this Mark Elvin concept, is, um, you know, kind of puts into focus the idea that when that the opposite of sustainability isn't unsustainability, um, it might mean that there are more disasters, which then have to be mitigated. It might mean that there are kinds of social transformations. It's certainly, I, I use the term in the book of declining baseline theory, each generation forgets or has no access to the knowledge of what things looked like before their own generations, right? Things might get worse or more difficult. Um, people's uh, nutritional um budget might get lower, right? But the opposite of sustainability isn't somehow society ceases to exist. It's just that the, the sort of the terms of engagement change over time. And, you know, you asked a few minutes ago with, about the Anthropocene, which, um, you know, I use the term in the book, I use the term in my classes, um, but it's one that I have become sort of increasingly disenchanted with because I think it puts, on the one hand, not enough of an emphasis on the fact that humans have been transforming environments for a very, very long time indeed, and also on the fact that the, the world that exists still today outside of the capacity of humans to make changes, for better or worse, um, is still very high. Right. And that kind of leads into uh, a kind of a broader question I wanted to ask about uh, writing this book, uh, the process of how you wrote this book, because you mentioned at the beginning that you've always been someone, a historian who's interested in looking at the kind of the longer term, the bigger topics. Uh, I became familiar with your work originally through what you were writing on the Song Dynasty um, uh, spatial kind of politics and territorial administration. So what was it like to make this step in the last 10 years from finishing a book uh, that was, had a narrow temporal focus to one that is so far ranging, looking at a process of, of several millennia? Right. Well, you know, what's funny is that from the point of view, you know, my first book, uh, Dividing the Realm in Order to Govern, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, started out as a dissertation book. And, you know, my graduate advisor was uh, very disapproving of the idea that I should be writing about 300 years for a dissertation, right? It's really, I mean, that's a long time frame for a dissertation. Um, and so... So even for that, you know, I, my, my instinct was always to go big. 
And, um, you know, and I'm really glad I stuck to my instincts for my dissertation and then my first book to do and train, you know, the entire history of the regime. There are things that you can't see unless you zoom out. And so to move from there to um, sort of 3000 years of history or, you know, in the introduction, millennia, um, epochs prior to that felt like an easy step. I should also say that my primary teaching work is not, well, I guess any of us who teach Chinese history, just given the structure of American and I assume British universities, we're always expected to be teaching 3,000 or 5,000 years of history at once, right, in a way that our Europeanist or American colleagues aren't. And so that always feels like just an instinctually easy thing to do because it's how I was trained as a student and it's how I teach as a teacher. And um, at Pitt, well, both at Merced and at Pitt, my primary teaching has never really been in Chinese history. It's been in world history. Um, and even though this book is kind of sort of a book of, war, of, of, of Chinese history, I absolutely think of it intellectually as imbued with my expertise and my enthusiasm for the field of world history. And, um, you know, I teach 150,000 years of history in 14 weeks every time I teach world history. And it is one of the most exhilarating things I do. I love teaching that class. And so, um, you know, from that point of view, the, the idea intellectually of doing 3000 years of history felt easy. Um, now that said, of course, there were times, I mean, we were talking earlier about specific episodes and specific individuals. And, um, you know, there were times that I really wanted to go down those rabbit hole holes that historians love. You know, who was this person? Why were they the ones, the, the person who was, you know, able to sort of act in dissent at this moment? What was going on? And, um, you know, I had to really discipline myself not to kind of let myself pursue those angles because the book would never have gotten finished. And even if it had, it would just have been an entirely different book, you know, not one that was as succinct as this or one where the whole sort of big narrative was as clear. Right. Yeah. And and I will say on, on that topic of the sort of a Chinese history versus world history, I did, that does come through in the book. It's very much a sense that you're talking about the Yellow River watershed as an area of the world, uh, as an environment rather than say a part of Chinese history that's only encased in Chinese history. Also invariably because the upper reaches and the lowest plateau that we, we've discussed uh, earlier in this conversation that, that frequently comes up as integral to the fate of the Yellow River and the people lower down in the floodplain, that at different times is not integrated into the agrarian Chinese empire fully. And so it is, and you do talk about these people that are sort of on the periphery and outside of this conventional Chinese history. So that does ring through this 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 world historical sense to it. I'm really glad that comes through. Um, I absolutely was always throughout the process of researching and writing this book. I always, just as you said, wanted to think of it as being a book about the Yellow River watershed, wherever that took me. If that took me into Central Asia, Mongolia, Tibet, great. 
that's fine, right? If it took me out to sea with the monsoons, wonderful, that's great. Um, and even when the entire watershed or most of the watershed was contained within a Chinese regime, um, that I always wanted to think of that as just being sort of the happenstance of where that geography happened to be at this moment. And also, of course, keeping in mind that um, they're really, you know, that that territory was so often under the control of peoples who were not of Han Chinese agrarian centered descent or impulses. And it made a huge difference, especially on the Les Plateau, who was controlling that territory at any given time. Right. Yes. I'd like to now segue to uh, another kind of question that that approaches the book as a whole. And that is, uh, and this is something that you raised very early on in this conversation when you gave uh, a brief biography, which is the f- the role of digital humanities in this project, obviously very, very important, as, as you stressed at the beginning. But I'd like you to um, just uh, elaborate a bit more on why are the digital humanities important? What kind of challenges are there in engaging in digital humanities research and how uh, in producing this book did you kind of confront some of these challenges and work through them? Yeah, so in this particular book, um, and, you know, I love the term digital humanities. It's a field I've been affiliated with for a very long time. But, um, you know, this is actually more a book of, I mean, this is a case where I think the big revelations and the big sort of added value is less sort of the digital humanities in some sort of large or amorphous way or in some way that's particularly high technology and really more about just data, databases and data sets, lists practically, ultimately structured and ultimately, you know, queried using um it was using the tools of relational databases, but really just kind of lists of when and where things happened, right? When and where did people move onto the Les Plateau? When and where were their waterworks? When and where were their floods? And, um, you know, and this started, I mean, all, almost all of the Les Plateau data is from the Zhongguo Lishi Ditouji. It's from the Historical Atlas of China. It's just taking these maps that started to be developed in the 1950s, right? Um, Low-tech cartography and just um, simply finding the settlements on those maps. And then for the floodplain data, it comes from um, basically a corpus of about a dozen or so books that have printed lists and printed tables of um, of events um, that were um, ultimately called out called out of the primary sources, you know, you know, in Chinese the Nianbiao tradition, right? The sort of the analytic writing of just like listing things that happen, you know, year after year, you know, in a timeline series, and really almost all the core data for this book is from that kind of Nianbiao type of writing. It's just lists of events. And, um, but by putting it all together, it's really, you know, there, in a sense, there's nothing much more fancy happening here than aggregating events and then being able to query the results of those aggregated events. 
Um, but what that did, I have the events geo-referenced, I have them temporally referenced. And so that's what allows me page after page to say with uh, a quite high level of confidence, you know, this is when policy changed, right? This is when people started doing a bunch of intervention on the floodplain, or this is exactly when I can pinpoint down to the decade, you know, when the river went from not flooding frequently to flooding frequently. And um, it's really exhilarating being able to do that. It allows me to, to assert, we were talking before about the long-term time frame. I could never have done that without this data set. Um, absolutely impossible. But because I had the data, it allows me to zoom all the way out, do some queries, um, you know, make some graphs and charts and say, I can figure out exactly when things changed. Um, so, so I, I think it's, it's extreme. You asked about challenges. Oh my God, did this take a long time? Oh my God. Right. I told you it took 10 years to write this book. Um, part of that is just, you know, I write slow, life is complicated. I switch jobs in the middle, raising a kid, right. You know, life intervenes, but also, oh my God, is it hard working with all that data? Um, and it's not something that I could have done without the luxury. This is this would have been an impossible first book, both because it took so long to sort of collate and make sense of the data, and also because it involved um, such a large and expert team of database experts and cartography experts and research assistants. Um, so, you know, I want to acknowledge um, some of my key collaborators and assistants. Um, Ryan Horn was the my postdoc at Pitt for two years and then uh, working with me for a third year beyond that was my data wrangler and cartographer and visualization person. I could not have done with this without him. Um, the person who for, did, gosh, probably three years of the initial data collection and data cleaning for those Nianbia, those kinds of analytic types of sources, is uh, was a student of mine at Merced named um, Kai Chi Hua, Hua Kai Chi, who, um, and those are the, there are many other individuals, but those are the two key people without whom um, this book would have been impossible. And, you know, even though my name is the only name on the spine, it's really important for me to think of it as being that kind of collaborative effort. Right. Yeah. I, I did notice that you have a, a wonderful kind of appendix that that, that gives a detail with the, the, the whole process about actually getting this data and kind of like conditioning it into something that you can work with and you can draw out these kind of conclusions from. I, I found that like really helpful as someone who has also dealt with databases before in my own work. And I understand many of those struggles. And it's always nice to see some a project that kind of lays all of that out and makes explicit like how much of that work has gone into it rather than saying oh and yeah here's here's just this database I did yeah right exactly <laughs> yeah. and I wanted to have that both uh, for several reasons I mean one is a sort of a template for other people to follow one is just to kind of um, make transparent what 
what the book has been based on and what uh, what people have been reading about. Where did where did these assertions really come from? And then also because it's so important to me. I mean, always, but a, but especially in this book to. Um, make clear how much I relied on the expertise of others and the labor of others. Yeah. And uh, if I could just pick a final point from, from how you're using the data, something I really appreciated was uh, right at the end, you provide a sort of a definition of events. So part of the way you process this data was you went in and you picked, uh, you labeled different events and you labeled them as different types of events and it was through here that you were judging to go back to the title of the book what were kind of natural events in the term of things that the river did and then what were unnatural things as resp human responses um so disasters and then kind of responses to disasters management events yeah oh go ahead sorry mm -hmm. oh no, no no please yeah no um that was and right one of the things that I, I say in the introduction to the book is that when I talk about what happened, I'm always talking, right, I, I, you know, I have some environmental science that I'm relying on, but to the extent that I'm relying on my data, um, it's, I, and I've been misspeaking a little bit for the last few minutes, this isn't what happened. It is attestations of what happened. It is what happened according to what was recorded in a range of kinds of sources written at or near the time of the event. Um, and that's really clear. I mean, there's one interesting anomaly in the data set, which is that um, during the Jin dynasty, the period when the, when the Song, I'm saying this for the benefit of people who are not experts in the period, right, when the uh, Song regime controlled um, basically the Yangtze Basin and the lands to the south of it, and the Jin, the Jurchen um, invaders controlled the um, North China, right? So this is uh, from the early 1100s uh, through on to the mid 1300s. Uh, sorry, did I get that right? Sorry, from the early 1100s to the late 1200s. Um, right during that period, the um, there is almost no record of any event that happens on the Yellow River, even though we know in general that that was a very, very floodplain, flood-prone time of world of of, uh, of Yellow River history. Um, it was just not a regime that was interested in recording that information. And what's really interesting is that then in the early Yuan, so the Yuan regime, the Mongols, conquer North China in 1234, but don't reunify all of historical China until 1276. And during that period, that 150 years, when um, the Mongols controlled North China, but not South China, they didn't record very much about what was happening on the Yellow River. As soon as they also conquered South China, everything changed. They started recording information much, much more scrupulously, not just engaging in more management, but also recording the flood information in much more detail. And um, that tells you, basically, that's because of the Grand Canal, which we were talking about earlier, that at the point that the um, 
Yuan rulers were trying to transport rice from the south to the north across the Yellow River floodplain, they had to worry about the Yellow River floodplain. When they were not trying to do that because of the geopolitical situation, they didn't have to care about the floodplain. And the same is true about the Yuan, who, the, sorry, the Jin uh, rulers who preceded them. So um, all of that is a kind of elliptical and long-winded way of getting back to um, thinking about data, which is that um, his digital historical projects are always based on ultimately the same sources that we learn to read as historians, right? When I was doing my mini bio, I said I started out as a traditional source reading historian and changed into something different. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, but the other way of putting that is that in a sense, nothing changed except that I'm aggregating more different sources, right? Everything is still based. I mean, if I'm trying to be a historian with integrity, what I'm still doing is trying to read and interpret sources and the events that I'm writing about in the Yellow River, even though I have in, in this book, um, even though I have several thousand of them, are still simply the ones that people at the time chose to record, and they uh, represent the biases of those sources about what people at the time thought was eventful or did not think was eventful. Right, yeah. And in terms of this data set that you have, this database, um, I, I fondly remember a few years ago, uh, you produced an article, uh, you co-wrote an article uh, called Don't Just Build It, They Probably Won't Come, uh, which talked about the um, the uncertainty around digital humanities projects in which there's a lot of there's a lot of work that goes into them, but then the afterlife of them is sometimes less certain in how they can apply to other projects. Uh, where do you see the uh, the future of the this uh, data from this project that you've um, that you so lovingly kind of <laughs> invested so much time and energy? Right. Um, yeah. So I mean, in a, I mean, one. I wanted to prioritize finishing the book. So in a sense, I mean, a lot of digital humanities projects, including the um, the World Historical Gazetteer that I'm the principal investigator and project manager project director of. Um, you know, that's a project that is 100% digital. All of the effort that all of us have put into that over years, the only manifestation is the digital project. So from that point of view, if people don't use it, it is right that that project has failed um, at some level. The because my the my main my primary and first outcome for the Yellow River research was to finish the book. As long as the book has readers, I will have succeeded, right? I will feel like all of that effort was worth it. That said, I absolutely also um, expect and intend to make the data available. And um, where that's at right now is that it's, um, how should I say, it's clean enough that someone who's really, really familiar with it, uh, myself or Ryan Horn, is able to query it and use it, but it's not really in a condition that is sort of well enough documented or clean enough to put out in the world. The queries that have to be run as kind of workarounds for some of the places where it's, you know, correct, but messy are, are pretty difficult. So um, I, uh, I want to spend my, my intention 
is to spend this coming summer working with Ryan and with a research assistant to do the final kind of stages of data cleaning and data documentation and to build a web interface in order to make the data available. Um, and, you know, and hopefully it will get used. Um, you know, one of the other people who I thought about a lot while working on this project was a colleague of mine who was an economist with a specialty in India who I was talking to just as I was first starting to scope out this book about 10 years ago and sort of talking about the kinds of data sources that I thought would be available for it. And he said, oh my God, people will so much want to see that data. Economists will want that data. You know, environmental scientists will want that data. So I hope that's true. Um, and, uh, and I'm interested in making it available, but in some ways this is not, this isn't, is not a digital humanities project in that the book is, you know, the high impact output that makes me feel reassured that whatever happens with the data, I will have, you know, my years of effort will have sort of paid off in some way by the book being out in the world. Yeah, I really sympathize with that. Creating a database for yourself to use is 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 one kind of large amount of work and then cleaning it up enough for other people to use is this whole other task. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, uh, that kind of leads me to the final question, a standard mainstay on New Books Network's uh, interviews. Um, what are you working on now? What kind of projects do you have in coming up in the future? Yeah, well, um, you know, like I just said, I there's I have more work that I want to do to make sure that the data from this book is out in the world. I would also like to follow up on a couple of those rabbit holes that I um, kind of disciplined myself to walk past while I was working on the book, but that I'd now like to get back to. So those are the things that kind of directly come out of this book. And then, um, you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago that I'm the project director of the World Historical Gazetteer, which is a um, infrastructure and content for mapping historical place names worldwide as they have changed over time. And it's um, online at whgazetteer.org. And um, I've been another collaborative project, a fully digital project. Um, my close collaborator there is um, Carl Grossner, who is a um, geographer and software developer. And um, we currently have about, I think, about 60,000 historically scoped place names and um, some, oh gosh, hundreds of thousands, um, maybe over a million non-historically scoped place names. And um, the idea is to be able to create infrastructure for people who want to map historical place names in over time, um, create tools for teachers, create a reference work, um, and also tools for people who have a bunch of historical place names to be able to enhance those place names with information that we already have in our databases. So, um, so I'm really energized by that project. I'm working really hard on that. And, um, and I'm also kind of in the early stages of scoping out a book about spatial history that focuses on um, 
what the limits are of thinking about spatial history as a matter of map making rather than a matter of thinking about text and data. And, um, and that's something, although that's going to be a book that is global in scope, is kind of more a work of theory than a work of history, it's absolutely informed by what I've done in the Yellow River and in Dividing the Realm prior to that, which is that the maps are always the least important and least interesting in some in some ways part of my data. It's really more a matter of sort of tracking events, the complexity of historical events over time, rather than starting by thinking about spatial visualization. And so that's what I really want to explore in the book that I'm kind of starting to think about an outline that grows out of my work on historical place names. Um, and then I also have a kind of ongoing project that I'm still sort of trying to find traction on um, about the Anthropocene as an epoch of loss um, that I've been working on with a colleague of mine at Pitt, a political scientist named Michael Goodhart. And, um, you know, that's something that's kind of transmogrified over time. As I was saying earlier, I've become kind of disenchanted by the term Anthropocene. But the idea is exactly exploring some of these questions about, you know, when, when, when we reach the limits of sustainability, what carries forward and what doesn't? And how do we think about that? And how do we as humanists and social scientists um, kind of uh, bear witness and commemorate what gets lost while also understanding that loss doesn't mean total collapse. And so that's another project that probably will not take the form of a book, could take the form of a book, probably won't, um, won't exactly be a work of history, but is um, absolutely informed by the by many many of the um insights that i reached working on the yellow river nice fascinating i, I always love how one project kind of creates so many more sort of potential avenues for projects be they rabbit holes be they theoretical inspirations uh, be they realizing that there are things that you don't look at in the process of what you do look at absolutely yeah. well i really look forward to seeing some of those uh, take shape in the future. Thanks. Uh, thank you very much, Ruth. This has been um, Ruth Mostyn, uh talking about her book, The Yellow River, A Natural and Unnatural History. Thank you very much.